From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Starting today, L.A. County health officials will start looking for antibodies in the blood of a 1,000 randomly selected residents. The hope is to ultimately determine how broadly COVID-19 is spread. Given limited testing on even those with symptoms, the antibody test might look backward to tell us how many were positive without knowing it. Our daily check-in with a medical professional will start with more info about the testing. And a high percentage of small businesses are on the ropes from the COVID-19 shutdown. Owners are having a difficult time accessing the SBA's offerings. We've assembled a team of experts to offer advice. It's Air Talk after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Very good to have you with us on this Holy Week. Hope it's been a good one for you so far. If you were able to have a Seder uh, somehow, even remotely with family members or friends, planning an Easter uh, celebration coming up Sunday while uh, using physical distancing measures. We're looking forward to uh, my mother joining us at a safe distance for our Easter meal coming up on Sunday. And on Monday, we'll be talking about how this weekend uh, was celebrated by you and your family members. That's Monday on Air Talk. Today, we begin as we have every day by focusing on the latest on COVID-19. There are now nearly 8,000 cases in Los Angeles County. There are new measures that are going into effect for facial coverings for people in the city of Los Angeles uh, doing essential business like going to supermarkets, working at supermarkets, going to other businesses that are deemed to be essential. And you even have more extreme measures taken in Beverly Hills, for example, where uh, the mayor has called on people to cover their faces any time they leave their houses, even if they're walking around their neighborhoods, not having any sort of close contact with anyone else. Joining us to talk about the latest developments on COVID-19 is Dr. Dean Blumberg, professor of medicine and chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital. Dr. Blumberg, welcome back. So good to have you with us. Thanks. Good to be back. Let's start first with something that's going on here in Los Angeles County. And I know that Stanford is uh, doing something similar in the Bay Area, looking at a group of individuals to test for antibodies to COVID-19 to try and determine how wide the spread has been. My understanding with Stanford is they're actually looking at uh, healthcare professionals uh, to determine suitability to return to work or to stay on the job. Here in Los Angeles County, they've randomly chosen a thousand people today and tomorrow. Uh, they'll have blood uh, drawn for antibody tests to try and look from an epidemiological uh, framework at the spread of COVID-19. Uh, your thoughts about this kind of research? I think it's really important to have this information um, since in the U.S. we got off to a very limited start to testing with the, the throat swabs, the PCR assays that actually detect the virus. 
we're still not sure how prevalent this virus has been in our communities. And so this antibody test, which will detect past infection, is very useful because then you can get an idea of what percent in the general population have been infected. And, and you really can get a better idea of how far we are, are along with um, infection. And this all goes back to, to the issue of when we're going to have a peak and flattening the curve and all. And uh, you give us a sense of the accuracy rate of these kinds of antibody tests. Uh, I know it's 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 not clear at this point how long someone would have immunity uh, once they evidence they have antibodies to COVID-19. But how accurate are blood tests like this to begin with? So there's two things that the antibody tests are looking for. One of them is looking for for very recent infection, like in the past four to six weeks, and that's the IgM assay part of the test. That one's a little less accurate. That one's prone to having positives even if somebody hasn't been infected, and that one's used for more diagnostic purposes. The other part of the test, the IgG antibody, that one is is more reliable, and that tends to show past infection if somebody's been infected um, at least two to four weeks ago. That one tends to be more accurate and more reliable, and so that'll give us an idea of really how much this was circulating in um, a certain community when you test um, citizens of Los Angeles, for example. One of the, the theories I know that uh, has has been out there, uh, I think this is, is one that uh, might be pursued at Stanford, is that in California, where we're seeing a slower spread of COVID-19 than in the hotbed of New York City, um, the thought is that perhaps because of international travel between California and the Wuhan region of China, that there might have been some exposure that went undetected last year that might have provided some degree of herd immunity this year from COVID-19, specifically in California. What do you think of that theory? I think it's an interesting theory, but I just don't buy that because if there was circulation in California, of course, we'd expect many mild cases or asymptomatic cases, but we would also expect people who are more prone to severe cases, the elderly, those with underlying medical conditions, and we still would have expected a surge of um, ICU admissions and, and deaths also, and we had no, no such signal was seen. All right. Well, let's open up the phone lines for listeners to ask questions of our guest from UC Davis Children's Hospital, Dr. Dean Blumberg. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. We've been so fortunate every day throughout this COVID-19 pandemic to have a noted physician joining us or public health professional to talk with us about COVID-19, and we all have a chance to uh, learn together day by day thanks to their expertise and generosity of time. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page kpcc.org. I'd like to talk a little bit about Easter. Uh, we did an extended segment earlier in the week about uh, Passover seders and people staying safe. I wonder about Easter. Um, to what degree can family members get together but stay apart, so to speak. 
Yeah, you know, I would not do that indoors anywhere. Um, if you want to take a walk with somebody and maintain the six-foot social distancing, that would be great. You can see them. You can talk with them. But um, I wouldn't do anything indoors by mixing families. We're, California has really done a great job with instituting these public health measures. We've seen an effect. We've seen a flattening of the curve. Um, and so it would be a shame if we went back on that and, and, and really lost the progress that we've made. How much of, of the, what you're calling the flattening of the curve do you attribute to the physical distancing measures? And how much of it do you think is just um, not surprising given that modeling on these kinds of pandemics is a pretty blunt instrument? It is, but even even with the blunt instrument of the modeling, even though the numbers aren't perfect, um, the models certainly showed a, a, a really high peak in California where when the surge came in California, we were just at the limit in terms of the capacity to take care of patients in hospitals. It looked like almost all of the ICU beds were filling up. And now it appears that we're having a much flatter curve. We're not having such a sharp peak. And we're going to have plenty of bad capacity in terms of ICU beds um, and hospital beds overall. We're, we're seeing some good news out of New York, and I don't mean to downplay the escalating day-by-day death rate from COVID-19. Obviously, what's unfolding in New York is tragic. Nonetheless, there are some positives when you look at the plateauing of hospital admissions. So, uh, Dr. Blumberg, same thing I've been asking our physician guests for the last four days, uh, but now it's another day longer. Is, is, is this something that, that appears this plateau is likely to continue? Yeah, if, as long as we maintain our current uh, measures and our current social distancing measures, we expect this to remain relatively flat. It looks like right now with the current situation that the peak number of cases will be um, on April 13th in California. Um, that's according to the University of Washington modeling site that many people are quoting. The state department, California Department of Public Health has um, updated numbers. They, they predict the peak um, later in early May. Um, but in any case, it's still a much flatter curve, much less of a peak, and it really makes sure that everybody who needs the care um, that will be required if they get sick in California, that, that the hospital beds will be there for them. And uh, do you think that once we have crested and we're on the backside of the pandemic, that we can have serious conversations about less vulnerable members uh, of of our community returning to work, um, maybe using some degree of protocols in that work. But can we gradually start um, getting back to work at that point? Well, I think what we're going to have is have those conversations, and those are going to be very difficult because what you're going to be balancing is all the economic hardship that people have been experiencing as well as the social isolation on the one hand. And on the other hand, if you start relaxing these public health measures of social distancing, um, there's going to be a resurgence in the number of cases, and lives will be lost. And so you're basically, on the one, you're basically balancing lives and economic hardship. And that is a difficult conversation. We, we of course, do that on many things. We don't like to 
think about that, but um, that is something that that obviously will be a very vigorous conversation. UC Davis Children's Hospital Dean Blumberg, professor and chief of pediatric infectious diseases, joining us. We're uh, at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We look forward to your questions. I did want to ask you about this Beverly Hills edict about wearing a facial covering whenever anyone um, walks outside. Is is there a reason for that in your mind if someone is not within any um, close proximity of another person? Yeah, so we've all, we've all heard about the six-foot distance for social distancing, and that's not really a magic number. Most of the droplets that um, people cough or sneeze out that may be infectious, most of them um, by gravity end up on the ground and you don't breathe them in within three feet. And the six-foot distance gives you a little extra cushion in case it's like a really forceful cough or sneeze. But there is some suggestion that in a small minority of cases that very small aerosolized particles may be produced just by even talking. And so asymptomatic people may be producing these aerosolized particles that can remain in the air for an even longer distance. And so theoretically, the um, more wearing of the masks um, outside, even among asymptomatic people, even if they maintain their distance, might decrease transmission even further. I'm not sure that that's going to have that much of a significant impact. We believe that about 90% of the transmission occurs from symptomatic cases. So the remaining 10% may be from asymptomatic cases. And I don't, I have really have no idea how much um, these aerosol particles um, contribute to that 10%. So I'm not, I'm not sure how much of an effect that'll have. Well, and you don't want to discourage people from getting out in their neighborhoods and exercising, walking and running and cycling and all the things, because there are health consequences from being more sedate as well. And so facial covering could inhibit people's ability to do a more rigorous exercise when they're outside. So I guess I, I'm kind of calling into question Question the trade-off that Beverly Hills is um, is making with this. It is a trade-off, and um, the other issue with masks, you mentioned it in terms of exercise. I mean, it does create some resistance to your breathing when you're breathing through a mask, and so really, like running or real aerobic exercise like that, running or cycling, it does inhibit you catching your breath. And then the other issue with um, wearing masks is if people don't know how to put them on and off um, properly, and if they don't wear them properly, there is a risk of actually increasing transmission because the masks may become contaminated. And so if people touch them on the outside where they may be contaminated and then touch their face without um, hand hygiene, that could increase risk of transmission. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org, UC Davis Children's Hospital, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases, Dean Blumberg, with us at 866-893-5722. We have a listener who asks about mask reuse, that uh, they've read some advice that um, people could have four masks that they use in rotation, one for one day. And, and I guess the idea that as it sits for three days between uses, that that would clear the mask. Uh, what do you think of that advice? 
I think it's a it's a very viable option. We know that the um, virus survives on surfaces. Most of the time it survives in an infectious amount only for a few hours. You can detect it um, even longer than that, but it's probably just because you detect it doesn't mean that it's infectious. So if you allow the virus to degrade in its infectivity just by sitting out in the open air, um, for several hours or a day, then you can be be pretty confident that any virus that contaminated that item will be gone. So maybe may, many people do this, like for example, with their groceries or mail or other issues that people might have touched and contaminated. Is they just set those aside for a day or two um, until any possible infectious virus can um, be degraded. Alexandra in Pasadena asks, "Can people volunteer?" For the antibody test, Alexander, my understanding of the L.A. County one is that it's randomized and that it needs to be to get uh, some degree of sense of the spread of COVID-19. But Dr. Blumberg, uh, any thoughts about the ability to get an antibody test? You know, that that test isn't widely available yet, so I don't think there are, are, are many options for volunteering. That may be different later, just like we've seen with the swab testing. Initially, there was very limited availability of that, and now it's much more available. Uh, Shirley in Arcadia says she's been seeing clinics advertising that they have a serum antibody test charging 95 bucks for people to just walk up and do the serum test. Um, I'm not familiar with what Shirley's describing, but have you, you heard of this, Dr. Blumberg? I have, and um, that's really a shame, really. You know, these limited resources should really be prioritized by public health, and, and clinics should not be, not be profiting from them. <coughs> Excuse me. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. I got choked up over that. Uh, We'll take your calls, your questions for our guest, Dr. Dean Blumberg, uh, joining us. RTB writes on the page, those aerosol particles can be picked up through our eyes if it's that virulent. No mention for the public to protect eyes, though medical staff do. Dr. Blumberg, your response to RTB. Yeah, so the um, the aerosolized particles primarily infect through breathing, so through into the respiratory tract. We know that with many other infections. With the eyes, the eye protection is worn by healthcare professionals for for droplets. And so, if, if we're going to get within three feet of somebody who's coughing or sneezing. Um, then we do recommend the eye protection in the hospital or the clinics. That's going to be the uh, the clear face shields or, or goggles. All right. We've had several listeners, uh, Gail in Highland is an example, but others as well, who think that earlier on that they might have uh, had COVID-19 because of particular symptoms. They don't necessarily know for certain whether it was the flu or, or whether it was COVID-19. Are folks like that uh, among the ones who should be prioritized for antibody tests? No, they're not. Those people are not being prioritized for the antibody test now. Although, if we have it, um, if it's widely available, of course, people are going to be curious if they had it. I mean, wouldn't it be great if you had it and you recovered, and you might have even been asymptomatic and had it and recovered? And so, I think that would provide a lot of peace of mind to people. But that's not really the priority right now when we're in the midst of this um, for these tests. And uh, so many people wondering, gosh, might I have had COVID-19 when uh, the assumption was it was just the flu? Without an antibody test, there really is no way to determine that, right? 
No, you need to do that specific test, uh, the specific antibody test. And what that test is, if you were infected and you fought off the virus, then you had an, an, an immune response to it. And so what this test does is look for specific uh, immune response, the IgG, the antibodies that are against this virus. Uh, we have uh, Sylvia tweeting at AirTalk, wonders how long after infection antibodies are likely to be detectable. Do we know? We don't know with this particular virus. Based on similar infections and similar coronaviruses, we expect the um, IgG antibody, the one that detects immunity, that that'll appear sometime between two and four weeks after infection. And then that will probably last and stay in the bloodstream for maybe a year or two. Um, after that, the immunity wanes and you could possibly get infected again. All right, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Judith uh, writes on the AirTalk Facebook page, uh, any chance that rain uh, lessens the chance of transmission when people are out in the world? Yeah, the, uh, it's interesting because a lot of these viruses are really affected by um, not only temperature, um, but humidity and also with sunlight. Um, I think the main issue with rain is it keeps people indoors more. And so the, the main issue with, with rain is that when people are indoors, um, generally it's more crowded conditions and that facilitates um, transmission of, of any respiratory virus. All right. Alex in Costa Mesa asks, will the antibody test be a good way of deciding who can go back to work? It would certainly seem to be, Alex, and I think that's why with Stanford's uh, testing, they're looking at essential health care employees as the most important uh, group of individuals to work with. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, I think that's the theory. Um, we're not 100% sure that's true. There were some reports from China that people were reinfected. And so so I, I think I'd like to see more information that really proves that people who have been infected in the past, if they're re-exposed, that they don't get um, infected because I wouldn't want to put people in, in, in danger. All right. Uh, let's see. Let me share some more uh, uh, questions. Uh, Dr. Anthony uh, Fauci, um, in an interview, I think it was a couple days ago, indicated that he thought handshaking should go away in perpetuity, that it was not uh, a safe way for us to greet each other. You agree with that? Well, I mean, I, I'm not going to agree or disagree with that. I mean, that has a lot of cultural implications and social implications. But I will say this, even before this started, when I shook somebody hand, somebody's hands, I, I, w I would be very careful not to touch anything until I did hand hygiene. And so when I was in social situations, I'd w I would al I always have a bottle of um, a small bottle of um, the alcohol-based hand gel with me. And then after I shook hands, I would, I would do some hand hygiene. All right. Uh, David and Reseda asks, because children are less likely to be affected by the virus, is there anything we can learn from them in terms of developing a treatment or a vaccine? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. You know, we're not sure why children um, do get infected, but generally have either milder infection or asymptomatic infection. It's likely related to their immune system. It's probably that older individuals um, may have a more robust immune response, and this immune response may actually make the symptoms worse and cause the severe pneumonia that, that occurs. And so what, 
um, has been done now in terms of some of the therapies that have been done is they've actually been modulating the immune system and not, not attacking the virus, but modulating the immune response. And those look very promising. Dr. Blumberg, we thank you so much for being with us. Um, We hope that you're able to enjoy uh, some rest over the weekend, although I'm sure you, like so many of your colleagues, are very, very busy these days. Thank you for taking the time with us. We appreciate it. Thank you, and thanks for getting um, this important information out. Dr. Dean Blumberg of UC Davis Children's Hospital, Professor of Medicine and Chief of Pediatric Infectious Diseases. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Film Week is coming up at 11. Our critics have a lot to talk about. We'll lead off with several brand new Netflix films that are streaming, and uh, our critics are high on at least one of them. You'll hear all about that. Coming up, the rest of this hour devoted to small businesses. We put together an outstanding panel to answer your questions. So if you are an owner of a small business that is endangered right now as a result of COVID-19, and that's obviously many, if not the vast majority, we'll be talking about the aid that's available as well as the snags in getting it along the way. We'll be back in one minute on AirTalk. Wonderful to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle as part of our ongoing effort uh, to address your concerns during this time of COVID-19. The rest of this hour is focused on owners of small businesses, many of whom uh, have had to close, lay off employees due to COVID-19, and have no idea whether they'll be able to receive uh, loans from the Federal Paycheck Protection Program or other uh, federally-backed loans. Uh, Small businesses were able to begin applying on April 3rd uh, for a total of $349 billion in loans, which Congress created as part of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. But for many banks, they didn't begin accepting applications right away. Others were so overwhelmed with the demand, they cut off lending. With us to to talk about where we sit right now is KPECC reporter Emily Guerin, who's been uh, reporting extensively on this. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Larry. Let's start, first of all, um, with how these programs work. Just a quick primer. The PPP program, which is the Paycheck Protection Program, how does that work for eligible businesses? Sure. So from what I can tell, basically any business that can prove they've been affected by coronavirus is eligible to apply. And what's interesting about this program is that independent contractors can apply Sole proprietors can apply. Businesses up with up to 500 employees can apply. And the idea is that you'll use the money to keep your employees on the payroll. So that's to avoid having your employees go on to unemployment. You can use the money to pay them. And if you do use the money that way, a large percentage of the loan is forgivable. In other words, it becomes a grant. And the uh, max is what, two months of payroll plus 25 percent? I believe so. Some of our other panelists might be better able to answer the the specifics of that because I know they've been guiding small businesses through the application process themselves right now. All right. Emily, uh, let's talk also about the small business owners from whom you've been hearing. What have been their biggest complaints about trying to get help? 
Well, Larry, there's been a lot of confusion in the rollout of this program. Like you mentioned, technically banks could start processing applications last Friday, but I heard from a lot of business owners that their banks, their websites weren't taking applications on Friday. Some banks initially, like Bank of America, seem to be disqualifying existing Bank of America customers if they didn't have lines of credit there, and the, the, the bank quickly had to change that policy. Others, like Wells Fargo, they didn't accept applications right away, and then they did for a very brief window over the weekend, and then they they closed down again, and they said, you know, we can't loan out any more money, which, as I understand, has had to do with some of their past practices with creating fraudulent bank accounts. They have a limit now on what they can loan out. I believe that's getting fixed. But it was really all over the board. And including today, I'm still hearing from business owners who've said, you know, I submitted an application. I said I was interested in the loan and I've heard nothing yet from a bank. And uh, one of the snags that I've heard, and I, I know our other guests can get to this, is that for the lending institutions, they still need to adhere uh, to these, uh, you know, uh, know your customer rules designed to make sure money laundering isn't occurring with, with any of these loans. So that can be challenging for banks if they're going to have to vet businesses with whom they've never done business. Right. And I think that's why a lot of banks were prioritizing their existing customers first, because if you already have a lending relationship with that business, there's less of a risk of fraud versus when you're taking in a new business client you've never worked with before. So I think that's why we've seen some banks say, hey, you can only apply with us if you've had you know, an account, a, a business account with us, a loan with us for X amount of time. Um, but it's been difficult for many businesses to find banks that will accept um, new customers if their own bank is not able to work with them. Also joining us is Pat Nye, Regional Director of the L.A. Regional Small Business Development Center Network. It provides advice to small business owners from the region of L.A., Santa Barbara, and Ventura County. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Larry. So uh, what have you been hearing from from the businesses you work with? So so the SBDCs have really been on the front lines of this. Um, we've had just a, a tremendous influx in calls of small businesses um, trying to navigate um, not just the PPP program, um, but also the, the other SBA product, uh, the IDLE disaster loan, um, as well as, as you know, al- other options here in California, um, unemployment benefits, really all of those, you know, potential um, resources. And so um, we have about 150 advisors uh, that work across eight centers uh, that are set up to help businesses one-on-one confidentia- confidentially at no cost um, navigate all of those different options. Um, we've also been uh, just phone triaging people and getting questions answered immediately. And and I think the, the number one thing is businesses are looking at how uh, they can best apply for these loan programs. Let's open up the phones for owners of small businesses. I'd like to hear in what uh, state uh, your business finds itself right now and what sorts of help you're pursuing, what obstacles along the way, or if something has worked, you actually got the aid or or you're set up to get the aid promised. I'd like to hear that, too. We're at 866-893-KPECC. 
please be very succinct. I want to get as many business owners into the conversation. So please get right to the point and just share uh, what's uh, right on topic with uh, federal uh, governmental assistance or any other governmental assistance. 866-893-KPECC. Pat, is there anything uh, else beyond the two federal products available? Um, Well, we are seeing uh, many cities step up. I know City of LA, City of Long Beach have been some some early ones to offer um, some city loan programs. Um, The state of California has a loan guarantee program that they work with uh, small regional lenders on. Um, So there are other options. Even LA County has um, tried to free up some grant funds and get those out to businesses. Um, so it, it's it's really a, a big mixture, and it changes every day. And so uh, we're recommending people contact uh, their SBDC. And, and in Los Angeles, they should go to smallbizla.org, and that's smallbizla.org. We also have a daily webinar where they can get questions answered every day at 3 p.m., um, and you'll find all that on our site. Um, so, yeah, I, I think people should take advantage of, of these SBDC resources. Um, we're, we're funded through the state and federal funds. We're no cost. We're confidential, and we can help people navigate. Well, uh, elaborate a little bit on the uh, disaster loan, the idle uh, business loan. How much uh, can that uh, be provided? Is there any um, forgivable part of that? Yeah, so the the idle loan, this is the loan product that the SBA rolls out in typical times of disaster. So we've seen it before in our region uh, when we've had the fires. Um, So this comes directly from the SBA. It's not lent out through a lender, but directly from SBA. It's up to $2 million. Um, The uh, interest rate is 3.75 for businesses, 2.75 for nonprofits, um, there is a potential forgivable portion of that. Um, they're calling it an advance, and it's up to $10,000 in a an advance. And based on your payroll, some portion of that may be forgivable. We're hearing for one employee that might be about $1,000, um, so going up from there. Um, the loan is offered at 30 years, and the first payment can be deferred for up to one year. And just like the PPP program, it is open to sole proprietors, um, you know, independents, really the whole spectrum of, of small businesses down to just individuals. If we have time a little bit later, I want to ask you also about some of your members uh, being eligible for unemployment insurance, which is kind of a new thing with the criteria now available. That's Pat Nye, L.A. Regional Small Business Development Center. When we come back, we'll talk with the president and CEO of Pacific Enterprise Bank in Irvine. They specialize in business loans and a variety of government guaranteed loans. Brian Hawley will talk with us about what his bank has been experiencing. And we're taking your calls, 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Film week coming up at 11 o'clock. Our critics have all kinds of good recommendations for at-home viewing in this time when COVID-19 has closed movie theaters across our region. Right now, we're talking about the range of small businesses that have been hit so hard 
by the public health measures to control COVID-19. Our guests include KPCC reporter Emily Guerin, who's been uh, writing and reporting on KPCC uh, about this extensively. Pat Nye of the uh, Small Business Development Center's L.A. region. And Brian Holly is president and CEO of Pacific Enterprise Bank in Irvine. Brian, thank you very much for being with us. You share with us from a banker's perspective, how has this gone with people uh, you've been setting up loans for? Um, well, it was slow at the start as everybody put their process in place. And then now it's it's starting to flow. So, you know, day one, you you just get deluged by new packages. And then as you properly pointed out, we still have to do all the background checks on these people. So it's you got to work your way through the system. But now things are really starting to flow. Would it help if Congress were to uh, lessen those requirements under the Know Your Customer um, anti-money laundering rules? Would 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 that allow you to process these a lot faster? Um, yes, uh, yes, and no. I mean, I'd, I'd still leave it there. I mean, fraud is a thing all over the place, so just just leave it. Um, obviously, if it's a customer, it's easier. Uh, but I, I wouldn't change that. All right. Let's take some listener calls. Uh, let's talk with Scott in Altadena. Uh, Scott, what kind of a business do you have? Yeah, so I have a small business that's tied directly mostly to schools and nonprofits, almost all of which are shut down at this point and won't reopen as it looks until August or September. So I'm effectively out of work for several months. Yeah. Where have you applied for help? Well, so I did apply for the idle loan, the $10,000 grant, essentially, but I've had a lot of trouble trying to apply for the SBA loan. I've got longstanding uh, business accounts with both Bank of America and Chase. Unfortunately, with Chase, I have a, a longtime credit card line, but they're requiring uh, a checking account. And then Bank of America, I have a longtime checking account, but they're requiring either a lending relationship and a checking account or a checking account, but no lending relationship with any other institution. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I'm being punished for all my years of loyalty to these institutions. So I'd like to know if there are any financial institutions out there who will lend to somebody like me who essentially doesn't even have an account with them. Brian Hawley uh, of uh, Pacific Enterprise Bank, you have any advice for Scott? Find a community bank that will do it. I mean, we're one of them, and there's several in the area. Uh, the issue is, of course, just capacity. You know, as we're, we're much smaller than a Bank of America. We're $500 million, and we can only process so much. And, you know, right now we have about 1,000 companies, and I'd say 90% of them are not customers. Wow. Uh, and uh, but but sounds like a lot of the large ones, they're looking to do business with their own customers first. Um, obviously, then they, they can avoid the know your customer uh, background check that they have to do. But do you think that that is fair, Brian, for for them to favor their own customers? I wouldn't say favor. I'd say it's just practical. I mean, it's more than knowing customers. You need the corporate documents, you know, the articles of incorporation and all the signers and everything else. And if you're trying to process, in some of these cases, 50,000 companies, it, it just it's not practical at first. Once they get through their customers, you know, their, their capacity will free up. All right. Let's talk with Leslie uh, at LAX. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. My husband has a dental office in Los Angeles, and this is a question I can't get answered. We have three employees that we have kept on, but we need some help. And my CPA is telling me we can list 
a salary for my husband, the dentist, also. But when Bank of America asked us to upload our documents, there was nothing in there about my husband's income. They just wanted the 940 form, which shows our employees' salaries. Does anybody know? Pat Nye of L.A. Regional Small Business Development Center. Uh, any advice for Leslie? Yeah, as we've been directed and uh, and from the information we've received from SBA, um, if the business owner, the, the principal person, is uh, is taking a draw from the business, then that would not count. But if they pay themselves a salary and it's you know, tracked as a salary would be for typical employees, then that should count as their overall payroll. All right. Uh, anything to add to that, Brian, uh, Holly? Uh, there's a cap on it up to about $100,000 of salary. Okay. Leslie, thanks very much. Uh, let's talk next with uh, Vani in North Hollywood. Welcome. You're on Air Talk. Hi. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I am a sole proprietor, but I do not have employees. And I went to fill out the application, but it's very unclear if I'm eligible without employees. Pat and I. Um, Sole proprietors are eligible for both the Paycheck Protection Program and the SBA's IDLE disaster product. Um, However, for the PPP program, that's really focused on employee salary, so payroll, and that just may mean it it may be a straight loan for you versus a product that has a forgivable option. All right. Vani, thanks. Tom in Valencia, also a dentist, says it's been really frustrating trying to navigate the systems. From what I understand, a part of the PPP has to be used within eight weeks of receiving the loan, but we can't choose when we'll receive the loan. We don't know when we'll reopen. It makes it really hard to decide when we should apply. Brian Holly, any advice? Um, well, that rule was changed. Uh, originally, they were going to give people up until June and then eight weeks afterwards. Now with the, you know, the amount of people coming this way uh, and people taking SBA authorization numbers early, they changed the rule where you've got to take the loan immediately and you have eight weeks. All right. We'll continue our conversation uh, with your calls at 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. But I do want to ask KPCC reporter Emily Guerin, uh, in the greater Los Angeles area, we have a large number of entrepreneurs who are undocumented. Do they have any access to these funds, Emily? Yeah, you know, I think this is a really tricky question. And I was just speaking with someone yesterday who runs a small community lending company, and he lends largely to Latino business owners, many of whom are undocumented sole proprietors, you know, think street vendors. And and our experts can correct me if I'm wrong, but initially the Treasury was asking, they had a citizenship question on the application for the PPP that they since removed. So now it seems like you can apply if you have an ITIN number, that's an ITIN number, that's what you need to file taxes. But um, this person I talked to, the, the, the lender, he said he's advising his undocumented clients to speak with their immigration lawyer first, because there's a question on the form about you know, have you committed a crime? Do you have a criminal record? And that could be open to interpretation. You know, you could see how the federal government might consider being here, um, you know, and being here without being without being a citizen or a permanent resident as, you know, committing a crime. So uh, there's some concern there, I think. All right. Maria in Rancho Cucamonga, I understand you've actually gotten aid through the PPP? Uh, Yes, I did. I applied for the application last Friday. 
I went to City National Bank, and fortunately, I had opened an account with them just about the beginning of this year, because with the Home Health Agency, we have a new payment system, so I was preparing to have some financial backup, and I applied for a, for a line of credit, and so when I reached out to them, it was originally a two-page uh, application, and then by Monday, an additional four pages and so on, but... They do tie it up with a lot of your income tax from 2018 or 2019. Yeah, and not all businesses have those tax documents all put together because the deadline has been extended. But for you, uh, you applied and and you've been approved for the, the money? Yes, I have. All right. That's great news, Maria. Thanks very much. Uh, one of the issues, of course, is that for many um, business owners, they don't have a formal business banking relationship with a bank. A lot of them just do it uh, through their own personal accounts. And Pat Nye of the L.A. Regional Small Business Development Center would seem that that might hurt them get the federal aid now. Yeah, um, and and that's really up to the individual banks. Um, That does not change um, a business's eligibility for either of these, these products. And the SBA does have uh, a map function on one of their web pages that's sba.gov backslash paycheck protection backslash find, where you can look up SBA approved lenders. So that might give you a better list to work down. Um, but, but really, you know, that's up to the individual lender, you know, what their policies may be um, in terms of, you know, existing accounts and that sort of thing. We'll continue our conversation with our experts about uh, small businesses, their challenges and efforts to take advantage of federal programs like the Paycheck Protection Program or the idle disaster loans from the SBA. 866-893-KPCC. Back in one minute. Our experts here to answer your questions about the financial challenges of small businesses and getting financial help. KPCC reporter Emily Guerin, who's been uh, reporting extensively on this issue, joins us. Pat Nye, who's the regional director for the Small Business Development Center Network and their office, which covers the L.A. region of L.A., Santa Barbara, and Ventura counties. And the president, CEO of Pacific Enterprise Bank, based in Irvine, Brian Hawley. Uh, Pacific Enterprise specializes in business loans and a variety of government-guaranteed loans. Uh, let's continue with listener questions. Questions. Let's talk next with uh, Deborah in Studio City. You're on Air Talk. Hi, Larry. I have a tutoring company here in Los Angeles, and I received an email from Bank America, I'd say over a little around a week ago, to submit the initial application, which I did. And they followed up in a couple of days with links to a secure site where I was able to upload the necessary documents. But beyond that, I haven't received any information. But they were very proactive, I found. Uh, Pat and I, um, should she expect some sort of confirmation down the road here? 
Yes, as, as you can imagine, uh, the the lenders participating in this have been overwhelmed, and they're doing their best to triage and get back to people. Um, it, and that's true of the the SBA direct loan, the idle as well. Um, there is a delay in in receiving notices back, but they are coming. And like the earlier caller, um, we've also been seeing companies start to get those funds in, so it is working. Um, but as you imagine. The entire country is a disaster center right now, so it's it's a lot for these lenders to manage, and I know everybody's doing their best to get notice out ASAP. Reg in North Hollywood says, I applied for uh, emergency loan with SBA and PPP, and I couldn't get through. Wells Fargo said I'm on a waiting list. I can't get another lender to take my application. Uh, Brian Hawley of Inter- uh, Pacific Enterprise Bank, any advice for him? Um, try and you know, talk to your lender to make sure that they've received your application. And what's happening also out here, people are putting in two applications, which are gumming, gumming the system up, too. So it sounds like he's saying he can't get a lender to take his application. He's on a, a waiting list with Wells for them to even take it, is what it sounds like. Right. I, so I would look for, like I said, the SBA list for another bank that has the capacity to take an application. Wells is basically saying, hey, we can't process what we ha- have in front of us. All right. Not Me tweets at AirTalk. I'm a small business owner in Pasadena who takes a draw, and my three employees are 1099 independent contractors. Would I still qualify for any forgivable loans? Pat Nye? Um, as we understand it, 1099s and draws are not qualifying for the forgivable portion. You can still access these loan products, but they may just be a loan product versus having a forgivable element. All right. Uh, let's see. Let's talk with Shan in Santa Monica. You're on Air Talk. Hi. Um, I'm the treasurer for a nonprofit corporation, and we attempted to apply through our bank, uh, One West Bank, on Friday. The application form is really... Uh, not set up for nonprofits, although you can say you're a 501c3, you then have to say to name owners and say the percent of ownership, and it needs to be signed by a principal owner. So the whole form isn't really set up. We, the bank, One West Bank, said they were no longer going to take uh, participate in the program on Friday, so they wouldn't take an application. And when we tried to get matched on an online setup, uh, we were refused, and I think because we don't have an owner. Uh, we don't have anybody who owns 50 Yeah, Pat and I, can you uh, talk about how nonprofits do this? Yeah, you know, in, in, in these forms and things really were designed with businesses in mind, but now they're trying to expand that to, to blanket a much broader audience. Um, I, I would say I would highly recommend um, going to an SBDC uh, and working directly with a business advisor to walk through all of the steps. Um, it's no cost, confidential, and they can take the time to look at you know each one of the different areas of the form um, to come up with the equivalent for an NGO. All right. Uh, thanks, Shen. We wish you uh, the best. Uh, Dennis in Harbor City says, I have a child care um, service company. Even though I do have some kids coming in for child care, I don't have my full income, so I can't pay off my loans. Would I be able to use some of the Paycheck Protection uh, Program money for my loans? Brian Holly. Uh, up, well, if you want it forgiven, only 25% above his payroll amount. 
he could use the loan. It just wouldn't be forgiven. Okay. Could he use the money, though, to pay off his loans that are due? Uh, he can. Okay. He can. There's no limitation on that. All right. I saw something about uh, the interest on mortgages, but it sounds like it's beyond that for the loans. Okay. Uh, thanks, Dennis. Uh, let's see. Uh, Anne in Glendora has primary income from rental properties, has one employee. Tenants aren't paying rent because they can't. Am I eligible for loans, and would they be potentially forgivable? Pat and I? Uh, yes. So so running uh, you know, a commercial leasing program, um, that would qualify your small business. Um, the payroll that you're paying to that employee would have the potential to be forgivable. Okay. All right. Thank you. I want to thank you both so uh, much, or all three of you, I should say. That's Pat Nye, L.A. Regional Small Business Development Center Director, uh, Brian Holly, the President and CEO of Irvine-based Pacific Enterprise Bank, and of course, KPCC reporter Emily Guerin has been doing fine work on this with her stories both on LAS.com and you hear her work on KPCC as well. We thank uh, our listeners for terrific questions and also want to ask uh, our guests i hope you can join us maybe in a couple more weeks we'll open up the phone lines again and take more owner questions owners of small businesses to be able to ask uh, about this coming up next it's film week here on 89.3 kpcc i want to wish you a terrific weekend particularly if you're celebrating Easter. I hope it's a a very meaningful time for you, for family members and friends, even as you're observing physical distancing in that celebration of Easter. My thanks as well to the tremendous AirTalk production team. You folks go above and beyond. Thank you so much. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. This week, we'll hear about several new Netflix movies. First up, Alan Yang's feature directorial debut, Tiger Tail. Also, the French comedic drama School Life, set in one of Paris's most economically challenged neighborhoods. The British romantic comedy Love, Wedding, Repeat also debuts this week. And Charles Solomon has an in-depth primer on anime, particularly good for parents wanting to catch up on the best of what their kids are watching. Some of it is pretty great. As we listen to the theme song from the original Speed Racer, it's Film Week right after NPR News on 89.3 KPCC. Adventures waiting just Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us today. I'm joined by critics Charles Solomon, who covers animation for Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. Claudia Puig is the president of the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. And Tim Cogshell reviews movies for Alt Film Guide and is critic at synagogues.com as well. We're going to talk about the new films available for you to watch at home, as well as get some other uh, vintage programming suggestions from our three critics this week. We begin with a new Netflix movie. 
movie Tiger Tail, written and directed by Alan Yang. Claudia, please start us off on Tiger Tail. Well, just so people don't get it mixed up, because it is on Netflix, it, it's not piggybacking off the Tiger King, um, just this, despite the fact that it has Tiger in the, the name. That is the name of a town in Taiwan where um, this film partially takes place. And it's directed by Alan Yang, who is the Emmy Award-winning writer, producer, and director. He wrote and produced Parks and Rec, and he co-created Master of None with Aziz, Aziz Ansari. He also did a great Amazon series called Forever. Um, and it's loosely based on his family. Um, it's a very quiet and moving and poignant intergenerational family saga. Um, there's some lovely directorial flourishes, very sort of artfully framed, some stunning cinematography. It's well acted. It's basically um, the story of a young man who leaves Taiwan. His mother's working in a sugar factory, and they actually shoot in the sugar factory where his father and grandmother uh, did work. Alan's uh, father and grandmother, and um, it captures an immigrant's, he immigrates to the United States, and it captures an immigrant's sense of being an outsider and feeling lost when you first emigrate, and he was a very exuberant guy when he was, and he was in love when he was living in Taiwan, and he has to leave all that behind. He goes to the United States on an arranged marriage, and his life becomes a very different life, and it's a really beautiful story. I particularly liked um, the actor that played him as a younger man, Hong Chi Lee. Um, and um, it's also about mending a rift between himself and his adult daughter. And they have this problem communicating, and he isn't as sympathetic as he could be. And he finds a way to reconnect with her, which I won't give away. But um, I, I found it beautiful and uh, very, very engrossing. Uh, Tiger Tail is the film. I assume it's in both English and Mandarin? It is. Okay. Uh, Tim, what do you think of Tiger Tail? Oh, uh, really a delightful movie. Sacrifice at the center of what's going on in this beautiful, beautiful drama. Um, uh, it flourishes, cinematic flourishes indeed. Shades of Wong Kar Wai here, especially when we're in Taiwan, a little bit of uh, in the mood for love, maybe a little Chungking Express, you see. But when we're here in the United States, when he's an old man, you see some old Ang Lee. A little pushing hands, the wedding banquet, even a little bit of the ice storm. So this, you know, it might be his uh, directorial debut, feature directorial debut, uh, Alan Yang. All that Parks and Recs and Master of None uh, notwithstanding. He's a very learned filmmaker, and you can see uh, where that education came from. From it really it shows up in this filmmaking. It's just beautiful filmmaking. Tiger Tail, a new film that's streaming on Netflix. Charles, what did you think? Um, I think the adjective elegiac might be appropriate for this, and it's about choices you make and choices that you regret. To get to America, uh, um, the younger character, the one played as Claudia said so well by Hong Chi Lee, has to give up the woman he loves and marry a rich man's daughter so that uh, they can emigrate. And they don't give him a lot of help. Once he gets here, he really has to struggle. Uh, but he never forgets his first love. And it's about coping with those losses and those choices. It's understated and tasteful and poignant. And uh, I quite liked it. Tiger Tail, rated PG, the first of three straight uh, Netflix streaming films that we review on the program. Alan Yang, the writer-director, in his feature writing and directing debut, Tai Ma, Christine Ko, Fiona Fu, and Hong Chi Lee star in the PG film.
Also on Netflix, the French comedic drama School Life. It's written and directed by Mehdi Adir and Grand Corps Malade. Uh, the film stars Zita and Rote and Liam Perrone. Tim, what did you think of School Life? Oh, I love I love this movie. It's just a, a wonderful little movie of the sort that I always enjoy. Grand Corps Malade. That's uh, his. Uh, that's his stage name. He's a French poet and musician who goes by that name. Look him up. He's a very interesting fellow. Uh, and what he adds mostly to this movie uh, is a lot of the musical uh, uh, soundscape of it. So this movie is about this young woman who goes to work in this very poor district outside Paris uh, where all these uh, disparate uh, sort of grouping of kids are. And these these are some tough kids that she's working with. And she's sort of their guidance counselor slash uh, security figure. And she has a team of people who works with her. And she's this young woman and she's ridiculously beautiful and smart and dedicated, but she has a thing that's going on in her life. There's this one particular young man uh, who's going to be the problem of her existence <laughs> uh, in this school. Uh, but but there are all kinds of things going on here, and it's a wonderfully told story. It kind of reminded me of a, another lovely French film called The Class from about 10 years ago, uh, a Laurent Canet film. Uh, and uh, it's great, great acting by all these kids, most of whom are whom they are. It has sort of a, a Desica kind of feel to it in that way. These kids are just playing versions of themselves. School Life, a film from France that's on Netflix. Charles? Um, I also liked it. Uh, I think it's a little bit in some ways kind of a a madame avec amitié, the feminine equivalent to Sir with Love, that the young woman Tim describes is hardworking and dedicated. The kids kind of steal the film because there are some excellent performances from these um, uh, unknown actors, you know, who are just kids being kids, but they're they're convincing. They're not mugging. You believe them. You care about their story. Uh, my probably my biggest problem was I don't think they translate the French slang particularly well, which is what the kids speak, and even the technical terms that the um, the heroine and the other characters use to describe their jobs uh, aren't rendered as effectively as they might be in the in the subtitles but that shouldn't detract from the uh the film itself all right and claudia what do you think of school life well i agree with both tim and charles i liked it quite a lot but i want to make sure that people watch it in the original french with subtitles and not the dubbed version because i initially began to watch it in the dubbed version and hearing American voices and, you know, all of that was, was very off-putting. Um, it, I had an entirely different reaction to the first 15 minutes. And then when I switched over to the French version, I appreciated it so much more. I think it also captures a lot of the subtleties of what's, you know, going on in Paris, you know, with, with some of the racial conflicts. Um, you know, a lot of these students are Algerian. Um, some are from various, you know, uh, children of immigrants from Africa. Um, it's very, it feels realistic. It feels well acted. It feels like it really captures the rhythms of daily school life. And I love that nobody is a stereotype. Every character is developed with depth and nuance. Um, there's a feeling of authenticity there. I think Zita Hanru is great. I think Liam Pierrot as Yanis was excellent. And there's another young actor who she kind of discovers his musical talents, his uh, character's name is Lamine, and his uh, his name is Ibrahim Fasher. He's wonderful. The young actors are just so wonderful, and I think the adult actors, Soufiane Gorob as Mesod, who is a dedicated math teacher, is wonderful as well. Um, I, I thought of... Uh, 
of the class as well. And I thought uh, it was just, it's very well done. But be sure to see it in French. All right. School Life, uh, unrated streaming on Netflix from writer-directors Media Deer and Grandcore Malad. The romantic comedy from Britain, Love, Wedding, Repeat, stars Olivia Munn and Sam Claflin. It's written and directed by Dean Craig. Again, it too, streaming on Netflix. Claudia. Oh, dear. Um, (laughs) (laughs) No repeat for you, it sounds like. (laughs) Love, Wedding, No Repeat, yeah. Um, Well, you know, it makes you appreciate uh, movies like Four Weddings at a Funeral and Death at a Funeral, which um, actually the writer-director here um, wrote uh, Death at a Funeral. I don't know if you remember that. It was a really funny um, British farce from 2007. It was remade. An American version was remade. It wasn't great. But um, it was it was one of those rare sort of very slapsticky and scatological and politically incorrect comedies that actually was pretty darn funny. Um, and uh, anyway, so this particular, uh, his writing, I think, is, is can be really good. Here, I think everything kind of goes awry. Um, Sam Claflin is no Hugh Grant. And... Um, uh, everybody, it's just, it's trying so hard. Everybody's trying really hard to be funny. It's exhausting. It's kind of irritating. Um, it's it's not. It has a couple of moments where you might laugh a bit, but mostly kind of mercy laughs, not, not real true chuckles. All right. Um, yep. Okay, love, wedding, repeat. Tim. <laughs> this movie. Uh, uh, Frank Oz directed that 2007 film, uh, uh, and, and Neil LeBute, that 2010 film, which starred Chris Rock, who was in Sam Kaplan's No Chris, Chris Rock either. This movie, and let me tell you about this movie. This movie is a complete cheat. This movie is those two movies. Uh, you love a wedding repeat, yes, and it's based after this French comedy. Uh, it, 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 it's, so it's based on the French comedy, but nevertheless, Every single thing that happens in this movie happens in both of those death at a funeral, right down to the little drug thing that happens. Claudio remembered this whole thing where somebody yeah. takes some ecstasy or something, and then in this movie, there's a whole thing where somebody takes drugs, and all of the conversation. I'm like, but this is the same movie. <laughs> Dean Craig keeps making the same movie, and you're not tricking me, dude. <laughs> all right, Tim's on to you. Love wedding repeat, Charles. Uh, if you ever needed something in a dictionary to illustrate the term first world problems, it would be a still from this movie. It's about a bunch of rich, vulgar twits who run around saying stupid things no one would ever really utter. Uh, not even the beauty of the Italian, Italian villa can distract you from the idiocy. And ooh, ooh, it's got Judy Dench using dirty words in the voiceover. Imagine. And that's all there is. All right. Love, Wedding, Repeat, streaming on Netflix, Dean Craig, the writer-director, It's Unrated. Trolls World Tour uh, was originally scheduled for a major theatrical release, the animated adventure comedy, but um, it instead is debuting on video on demand with multiple cable companies as well as other uh, on-demand platforms like Amazon. On Prime Video, Google Play, Apple TV, and more. It was not made available for our critics to review Trolls World Tour, so we will review the film next week, but it is available to be seen this week on Video On Demand. It's rated PG. Walter Dorn is the director. The drama Stray Dolls is a video-on-demand offering that's directed by Sanjui Sinha. Uh, Tim, what would you think of Stray Dolls? 
you know, it's not like I haven't seen this movie before. All of us, we've seen this movie. Uh, it begins with this young Indian woman who arrives uh, in, in, in this, at this hotel, this motel, this beat-down motel run by this Russian woman played wonderfully by Cynthia Nixon, and she has to give her a passport. And, you know, it looks like it's going to go bad right from there. And you feel like you've seen this movie before. She gets this roommate. Her roommate is this sassy sort of uh, white trash hookery type chick who carries a knife. And you figure, yeah, I've definitely seen this movie before. And then it takes a left turn. And it kind of keeps doing that as you work your way through this movie. Every time you think you're in this movie that you've seen a whole bunch of times, it takes a left turn. And I, I rather enjoyed that about it. Eventually, I just decided to sit down and let the movie be the movie. And the movie got pretty good, pretty intense, kind of Bonnie and Clyde, only, you know, more like Bonnie and Bonnie E. Uh, and I, I think I kind of like this movie, is what happened to me. <laughs> Where is it set, Tim? Uh, it's, it's set in some sort of, I'm not exactly sure, it's set in some sort of like a grungy city like Pittsburgh, or maybe okay. it's New York, like a Hell's Kitchen or something like that. Claudia, what do you think of Stray Dolls? It's set in Poughkeepsie, New York. Um, so that much I can tell you. Not Pittsburgh, but Poughkeepsie. Um, but I don't think I've ever seen a movie set in Poughkeepsie that I can think off the top of my head. So there you go. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, I guess I was a little less high on it than Tim. I, I think it's a mixed bag. Um, I think there were times when it was quite intriguing and sort of incisive about what it's like to be desperate and young. And, you know, in the case of um, Riz character, played by Jitanjali Thapa quite well, um, she's an immigrant, and she's, you know, like uh, Tim said, she gives up her passport. And, uh, you know, she was quite good. Cynthia Nixon's always good, and she was really good as this kind of Eastern European manager of this motel. Um, and there's, you know, a lot of violence, and, and, and it does kind of go in ways that maybe you're not expecting, but then you do expect parts of it. I don't know. It just, um, I felt like it was an emotionally, it was kind of emotionally driven, but All I right. felt like it was a mixed bag in the sense that the characters weren't terribly well developed, and it felt kind of distant and cold and a little devoid of purpose. All right, hold that thought. Straight Dolls is the film. It's unrated and available on video on demand. We'll continue on Film Week on 89.3. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. I'm Larry Mantle. I hope you're enjoying how the show has evolved with no movie theaters open to go to to watch films. That means it's at-home viewing where we can see some things that maybe would, wouldn't have ever been exposed to before and where we can also see new movies that are available on streaming services or video on demand. We appreciate our critics, how quickly they've adapted to the whole new world of uh, filmed entertainment. Our critics this week are Tim Cogshell, Claudia Puig, and Charles Solomon. Next up is the horror sci-fi film Sea Fever. It's a video-on-demand release. The movie is star starring Hermione Corfield. It's written and directed by Nessa Hardiman. Claudia. Well, only if you're fascinated by all forms of aquatic peril uh, should you venture into these waters. Um, it this it doesn't never quite heats up uh, as the sci-fi thriller I think it's trying to be. It has moments of being an epidemic thriller, so I guess that's kind of timely. Um, uh, an echo thriller I think it bills itself as, but it feels undercooked and under-suspenseful and underwhelming, ultimately. Um, 
it, story itself wasn't that interesting, and it lacks the tension. Um, characters feel like they've kind of been, you know, pulled out of a playbook. Um, it's about a kind of uh, quiet and shy marine biology student who would rather spend her days alone um, in a little lab somewhere, and she's put on a fishing trawler, and she doesn't get along with a very close-knit crew, and then uh, something happens that ensnares the boat, and it turns out to be a creature. I won't give too much away, but it <laughs> never really gets uh, – it doesn't get your your pulse racing, and it doesn't have the, you know, uh, I think, appropriate – it doesn't necessarily feel claustrophobic either. All the things that you that should come from this kind of thriller don't really – come to the fore. It's giant fish stick. I know it. Uh, sea fever, Tim, uh, what did you think? <laughs> uh, well, you, look, Claudia's right. This is one of those Buck 95 movies, you know. Uh, <laughs> we got a Buck 95. We're going to set a movie on a boat, and we're going to shoot most of the scenes in the bottom of the boat. <laughs> and, 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 but what we are going to do is get a bunch of really good actors to perform all this stuff. Hermione, I thought, was really, really just wonderful. And Connie Nielsen and, of course, Doug Ray Scott. Uh, Miss Hardiman, uh, her, her compositions are very, very good. And I like the way she works the, the, the action in this movie. Um, and, and, and though this is her debut film, this is a lady with 30 years of Irish television uh, behind her. And, and she's an alum of Jessica Jones, the Jessica, Jessica Jones series. Uh, did two excellent episodes of that, a.k.a. Everything and a.k.a. Pork Chop, particularly wicked episodes of Jessica Jones. So this is okay, but, you know, if you want to watch her work, check out Jessica Jones. All right. Talking about the writer-director, uh, Nessa Hardiman, Sea Fever is the horror thriller. It's unrated, available on uh, cable and satellite, video on demand, as well as multiple streaming platforms. Charles, can you give us uh, just a, a quick uh, review of Strike, which is a British animated film streaming this week? Uh, yeah, and it should be quick because it's a forgettable film. <laughs> um, this has been apparently been sitting on the shelf since 2018, which is a good place for it. It's a little mole who wants to become a football player, he would play a soccer player rather than a minor, and everybody tells him, oh no, you're a mole, you can't see well enough in, bright, in the bright lights of a game, you can't be a football striker. So before the movie has spent 10 minutes, you know how it's going to end. Uh, the stop motion looks like it was designed and animated at Rankin Bass about 50, 60 years ago. And after the work of Ardman and Leica, it just, it just doesn't work. And why do you make a character who's an eccentric inventor in stop motion after Wallace and Gromit? You're just setting yourself up for the worst comparisons and I'm not going to make any more of them. You're, you're breaking my heart, though, with the Rankin-Bass there. I mean, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, Charles? Yeah, but, I mean, you don't watch that for the brilliance of the movement and the acting yeah. the characters give. It was 1964, I think, too. So, uh, Strike, we're talking about British animated comedy. It's unrated, directed by Trevor Hardy, and available on multiple uh, video-on-demand platforms. And the Netflix action comedy, The Main Event... Uh, features a number of WWE wrestling uh, celebrities. Jake Harris, the director, Tim, a moment on the main event? Well, you know, it has nothing whatsoever to do with the 1979 Ryan O'Neill, uh, Barbara Streisand film, the main event, which was extremely disappointing uh, because I thought it was going to. Nevertheless, this movie is about a little kid who finds a Lucho Libre mask 
that gives him the magical power of having a deeper voice and being able to wrestle really well. Uh, and, uh, you, it, this happens at an opportune time because the house is going to get taken back by the bank and he can fight in this fight and win $50,000 and save the house and all of this kind of stuff. It's it's look, this is pointed directly at really young kids. I'm going to say 12 and under. And again, it has nothing to do with the Ryan uh, O'Neill Barbara Streisand film at all. The main event is unrated and it's streaming on Netflix. Those are the films that are new in release this week. But as we're doing every week, we want to give our critics an opportunity to talk about some of the terrific things that they're seeing at home. And we also want to take advantage of Charles Solomon's animation expertise uh, to talk with us a bit about anime, Charles. And uh, parents might want to have a sense of what they're older kids are watching. Uh, what are some of the anime series that you particularly recommend? Well, for parents, I would say there are three series they really need to know these days to understand what their kids are talking about. Uh, there is One Piece, and if you look in the background of one of the kids' rooms in school days, he has One Piece posters up. <laughs> That's funny. Maybe the most popular animated franchise in the world. There are more than 900 episodes of the TV series. It's still going. It's sold over 470 million books in the manga, which makes it a rival to Harry Potter. It's a comedy adventure about Monkey D. Luffy and his straw hat pirates. Uh, it's silly. It's a lot of action. Uh, Luffy is a wonderful character because he never thinks. He just goes charging in. But he is fanatically loyal to his friends and to the idea of friendship. Uh, it's lots of fun. Uh, that's One Piece, and that's available on Hulu, Funimation, and Crunchyroll. And and the most popular animated franchise in the world. It's extraordinary, Charles. Um, it is. And I would, someday I would love to interview the creator, though he stopped talking to the press a long time ago. But everybody loves uh, Luffy and his friends. The other anime series they also refer to in um, school days is Dragon Ball, in particular Dragon Ball Super, which is the latest installment of what may be the Ultimate Boys series. Uh, Dragon Ball, when it was running in the boys' magazine Shonen Jump, the magazine was selling more than 6 million copies a week to, for kids to read it. It's been animated. They tried to do it in live action. It's a lot of products. Uh, it's kind of a um, it started out as an evocation spoof of a journey to the West, the classic Chinese novel, then went completely off on its own. It's a mixture of martial arts training, slapstick comedy, uh, male bonding and these over the top slug fests, all centered on the alien super saiyan son Goku. And if in the days when we could still go to the gym, uh, you would see guys in their 20s with Goku's gym t-shirts or work out like a Super Saiyan. Um, when the first movie in the Dragon Ball Super franchise came out, I took my trainer from the gym to it, and he and his roommate were bouncing up and down in their chairs like they were 12 years old. <laughs> oh, he's ramping up again. Oh, I haven't seen this since I was a kid. Oh, God. Um, it's maybe the ultimate boys series of all time. Now, are the do the Dragon Ball the different series like Z and do they do they all relate to each other or stand alone? Uh, both. Uh, they first did Dragon Ball. It was such a hit that Toriyama did Dragon Ball Z, and then 
they animated another series that was um, G- Dragon Ball GT. They also recut it, the earlier series, to be Dragon Ball Kai. And now there's Dragon Ball Super, which is uh, a new incarnation of things that Toriyama, the manga artist, decided to go back to. And it's all the characters people know and love, but with new adventures and new opponents and new levels of power that they can ramp up to. And finally, uh, Goku will win the day with his Kamehameha blast of psychic energy and take down whoever, anybody. Dragon Ball Super, the anime series we're talking about. Now, we have a clip from My Hero Academia, but Charles, just tell us a little bit about the series, and then we'll hear the example. Well, this is sort of the new kid on the block, and this is one that really, like One Piece, appeals to both boys and girls or men and women. It it really crosses a lot of boundaries, and it's probably the closest thing in American culture to it would be Spider-Man, because the hero, uh, Izuku Deku Midoriya, is not cool. He's not muscular. He's not huge. He's nervous and skinny and fretful and insecure. And like Spider-Man, he acquires his superpowers later. Uh, And so he's got this enormous learning curve. But what makes it, uh, one of the things that I think makes him so appealing is that he doesn't do things for glory or rewards or money, but because helping the weaker is the right thing to do. Let's listen to this uh, this clip from the hit anime series, My Hero Academia. It's a tense scene. The hero, uh, hero uh, Deku, is fending off the villain Muscular and tries to buy some time for his friend Koda to escape. Let's just go! Come on! Your punch didn't hurt him earlier, remember? Besides, both your arms are busted up! It's going to be fine. <laughs> One for all! 100%! I'm coming for you! Detroit! What's wrong? That was even weaker than before! Okay. It'll all be okay! I will not let him get past me! Coda, run! Go now! Great sound effects, Charles. <laughs> yes. And when was the last time uh, any American superhero, you know, got bones broken fighting for what he he believes in or to protect someone? And there's a complexity to some of these characters. One of his uh, frenemies, Shota, was abused as a boy. And so he won't use the superpower he inherited from his father. And Deco keeps arguing with him, no, you have to be the strongest version of yourself to fight for justice. And that's not the sort of thing that that, uh, we do in our kids' series. We're talking about the anime series My Hero Academia. It's available on Hulu, Crunchyroll, Amazon Prime. Let's talk about one of the features in anime before we break. We also have a clip from it. Can you quickly set up Mirai, Charles? Uh, This is an absolutely charming film. It was nominated for an Oscar last year by the very talented Mamoru Hosoda. And it centers on Kun, who's this happy, chubby little four-year-old, and then his world is shattered when his parents do the the unthinkable. 
they bring home a baby sister. And so he goes on a series of these fantasy adventures to learn his place in his family now and in the world. And it's an absolutely charming film. Uh, I assume Claudia and Tim saw it, too, and I may want to chime in. Well, let's hear a clip. This Oscar-nominated film, Mirai, in this scene, the young protagonist, Kuhn, helps his parents pick out a name for his new baby sister. Hey, Kuhn, so what do you think we should name the new baby? I can pick? Let me see. Uh, Nozomi. Nozomi. It's not bad. Yeah, not bad. Anything else? Or maybe Tsubame. Tsubame. Okay, Tsubame. Tsubame? Those are just the names of his bullet uh, trains. <laughs> of course they are. <laughs> uh, Claudia, you have a quick comment on Mariah. Have you seen it? I actually have not seen it, I'm sorry to say. Tim, have you seen it? It was extraordinary. Just a beautiful, beautiful film that Charles uh, turned me on to last year, so he's absolutely right. Uh, Charles, you want to give us about uh, 30, 40 more seconds on it, and then we'll break. Um, Well, again, it's about dealing with siblings, which can be so traumatic. And he visits uh, his great-grandfather, who was injured in the war. He learns that his mother was a little terror as a little girl. And all these things ultimately teach him. Uh, He's not just Kun anymore. He's a big brother. He has responsibilities. He has a new place. Uh, It's just such a lovely, charming film from one of the top directors uh, in Japan at the moment. All right. And the director is Momoru Hosoda. Mirai, the film from 2018. You can see it on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, Google Play, and Voodoo. We're talking with critics Charles Solomon, Tim Cogshell, Claudia Puig. We have much more in the way of recommendations from our critics to come. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Great to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Our program has evolved over the past few weeks with no movie theaters open for us to see movies on a big screen. Uh, We have so much great content, though, to see at home, and our critics are sharing it with us. Joining us this week are critics Claudia Puig, Tim Cogshell, and Charles Solomon. Charles is talking with us about his anime picks, and we're just talking about the feature film Mirai of a couple of years ago. Last year, Charles, we had the release of Promare, uh, and this is going to be available to rent or buy later this month. Briefly tell us about this sci-fi anime. Well, this is something very silly, very rollicking, and it's like being hit in the face with a Daglo custard pie. There are just these flamboyant colors, these angular designs. It's over-the-top action. Uh, you don't go there, expe- uh, don't watch it expecting a really coherent story or complex characterizations like you got in your eye. But if you just want something wild and visual that you've never seen before, uh, this is your film. All right. Pramare from 2019 will be available for home viewing later this month. And from just over a decade ago, Momoru uh, Hosoda's uh, film Summer Wars from 2009. Charles, a moment on this. Uh, again, a terrific film. Hosoda is such an interesting director. And this uses a crisis in the cyber world 
that affects the real world. And he uses drawn animation for reality, um, uh, CG for the cyber world. So he creates this interesting visual contrast. And it's, again, a terrific film. He's such a good filmmaker. And this does a lot of what Ready Player One and Wreck-It Ralph Rex the Internet tries to do and does it better and did it first that you really understand how these two worlds interact and how things in one do affect the other. And you've got in Natsuke um, a complex, interesting heroine who's an individual. She's not a symbol for girl power. She's not um, a, a set of things for marketing. She's a real character who has fears and worries, but who has the courage that it's she who ultimately defeats the cyber threat. All right. Summer Wars is the film. Funimation has it streaming on its site. And your name from 2016, the most successful Japanese animated feature of all time, Charles? Yeah, it even outdrew Miyazaki's work at the Wow. Wow. And again, Hos- um, I'm sorry, Shinkai is another one of those new directors who are moving animation and anime especially uh, in new directions. This is another one I suspect uh, Tim and Claudia have probably seen because it got so much attention. It begins as a very sweet, silly, uh, funny, body-swapping teen rom-com where two teenagers, one a girl in rural Japan and a boy in Tokyo, start waking up in each other's bodies and dealing with some of those problems. But as the story develops, it turns into this very thoughtful, very deep meditation on the trauma that Japanese people still suffer from the destruction of what we refer to as Fukushima, and they call the Great East Japan Catastrophe or Disaster. And they realize that, yes, even their uh, their homes can be destroyed. And in that uh, earthquake tsunami, thousands of people were killed, entire villages were washed away. And it's something that they're still processing in Japan. And the government response to it and the problems therein. And Hosoda, I'm sorry, not Hosoda, Shinkai explores it in ways that are intriguing and interesting and very, very moving. It's one of my favorite films of recent years. Your name from 2016 on Amazon Prime and streaming on Vudu. Uh, Claudia Puig, want to ask you about some of your picks. Let's start with what's streaming on Netflix. And uh, there are three films I know that you want to point out, beginning with Tell Me Who I Am from director Ed Perkins. Tell us about this documentary's premise. Well, I think it's a fascinating premise. It reminded me a little bit of Three Identical Strangers that was out a couple of years ago. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Oh, our critics love that. Yeah. Yes, yes. I was one of them. And um, this one is about identical twins who, um, because one of them has an accident and his memory is wiped out, uh, of, uh, and his brother, his identical twin brother, helps him sort of uh, brings his memories back to him or he helps him sort of, you know, reconnect. Um, but something happened in their childhood. And again, I don't want to give too much away because it really plays out like a thriller, um, that he sort of, um, glosses over in order to protect him. And, um, 
I'm, I don't want to say any more. Okay. It's something people should really see for themselves, but it's really powerful. Tell Me Who I Am, documentary streaming on Netflix. You also want to recommend uh, Noah Baumbach's film that stars Greta Gerwig, Francis Ha. Oh, I love that movie. Yes. Um, you know, that's, you see how wonderfully they work together. Um, and uh, I'm such a fan of Greta Gerwig's anyway. Little Women, by the way, I think is just uh, out streaming as of a few days ago, too. Um, but she just brings so much uh, depth to this character. She's funny. She's a little sad. She's uh, just a fully rounded, multidimensional character. And um, it, this is Noah Baumbach at, at his best. I love this and Squid and the Whale particularly. And I think um, this is there's just there's a there's a couple funny lines in it that I have a good friend and we sort of you know repeat those things <laughs> to each other. <laughs> Francis Oz, the film again on Netflix. Corpse Bride, also the animated film uh, from Tim Burton. Such a terrific film. Oh, love that film. You know, and what I what the visuals are so beautiful there because there are you know, elements of kind of Day of the Dead brought into this, you know, when they go to the underworld, it's so much more vibrant and alive than the the real world that they're living in, in this sort of Victorian England. And um, just, you know, it's so beautiful to look at. And it's so achingly moving and emotional and sad. You know, when his dog comes back, there's all these moments that just are almost heartbreaking. It's been years since I've seen it. I'm going to check it out again, Corpse Bride. Then there are three Netflix series. Let's begin with Hentified, which is set right here in East Los Angeles. Yes, there's actually a couple really good um, uh, series that are streaming that are set in East L.A. One is Hentified, and one is Vida, which is um, was originally on Stars, and I think it's now on Hulu. They're both really good, and they, they tell different stories, but um, they deal with gentrification, and they deal with family, um, you know, uh, familial struggles, and um, in the case of Vida, it's about two uh, women who, sisters who come back, they're kind of... Um, uh, you know, they've they've grown apart and they come back because their mother has di- died. In the case of Hentified, it's about three cousins who are helping their grandfather keep his taco shop going. Both of them are really good. They're made by um, Mexican-Americans. They're, they have largely, you know, uh, Latinx writers in the writer's room, and they're both really great series. I urge people to, to see both Hentified and Vida. Uh, Hentified again on Netflix, and Vida is uh, on either Stars if you're a subscriber, or Hulu has its streaming as well. And back to Netflix, Claudia, uh, you tell us briefly about the four-episode series Unorthodox. Oh, I love this. I just watched this at the um, suggestion of a good friend and um, who had read the book. It is based on um, a, a true story. Uh, uh, I think her name is Deborah Feldman is the author. Um, about a woman who leaves her life in this very, very cloistered Orthodox community in Brooklyn, in Williamsburg. Um, And this plays out like a thriller. There's elements of a spy thriller. It takes place in Williamsburg in Brooklyn and then also in Berlin, where she flees to. Uh, and that's not giving anything away. I think that's that's revealed pretty early on. Uh, the lead actress is this Israeli actor named Shira Haas, who's amazing. She's just so she she brings so much depth to this character named Esty, and she just she never feels like she fits in. And women are so um, kind of tamped down in in this world, but it doesn't necessarily. Uh, it, it gives you a full sense of the of the world of the beauty of some of the traditions. 
and the rituals. Um, her wedding is one of the most beautiful scenes I've seen. Um, and it gives, it, it doesn't really create villains. All right. We're talking about the uh, series on Netflix, Unorthodox, based on the memoir from Deborah Feldman. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. We're going to hear Tim's picks as we come back in just one minute. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle, Tim Cogshell, Charles Solomon, Claudia Puig, all joining us with their picks on the best in at-home viewing. Charles earlier took us through some of his anime picks for both series as well as features that are available for streaming. Uh, And Claudia talking with us about some of her favorites on Netflix. Uh, now Tim Cogshell to share some of his favorites. Uh, Tim, let's start with a Netflix series that you want to tout. Uh, on My Block, it too is set in Los Angeles. Yeah, it's set in a sort of make-believe neighborhood of Los Angeles that doesn't actually exist, but feels very Inglewoody to me, uh, having been hanging around uh, South Los Angeles for a very, very long time. And I love the cast of this show. It's uh, set amongst a bunch of teenagers who first meet them. I think they're sophomores in high school. I think we're into season uh, two or three now, uh, and they're getting to that point where they're about to graduate. So we we follow these uh, diverse group of kids, a Latino boy, a black kid, a little, a little black slash uh, mixed girl, uh, as they go through the sort of trials and tribulations of living kind of in the hood, where things um, aren't, aren't nearly as bleak and horrible as you would think. One of the characters in this show is South Los Angeles, actual South Los Angeles, those long streets with those beautiful vistas of palm trees on both sides yeah. looking up toward the mountains. It's just absolutely gorgeous, all those little beautiful houses painted in every color of the rainbow. And yeah, you have some stuff that has to do with gangs, but it's not all about gangs. It's mostly family and relationships and being in love when you're a teenager. I love that little show. On My Block is the series, and you can see it on Netflix. Uh, let's talk about a freeform uh cable uh, channel series uh, that you also want to recommend, Motherland Fort Salem. Yeah, I really like Motherland quite a lot. Elliot Lawrence show. Elliot Lawrence gave us the big gay sketch comedy show and Claws and a few other shows that are sort of female centric. So that this doesn't surprise me. It's about an alternate USA where doing the Salem witch trials, uh, the tables were turned and there ended up being a sort of negotiated settlement between the witches, which are real, uh, and the United States of America. So here we are 300 years later and the witches, these very powerful witches are basically the United States army. Women in general are the sort of uh, matriarchal figures in the country. Now there is a schism amongst these witches and what's going to happen there is going to be interesting. I love this alternate history. I love the sort of female dynamic uh, in, in this show. I love the magic in this show. The special effects are absolutely superb. Uh, and uh, it's the sort of show that releases one a week. So you only got three, uh, and then you have to wait. Motherland, Fort Salem on Freeform uh, is the series. On HBO, a series that's gotten tremendous attention and, by all accounts, dynamite ratings, the series The Watchmen. Tim, for those who haven't seen it, what's it about? Uh, the Watchmen picks up more or less where the Watchmen film left off, which, of course, picks up more or less uh, and tells the story of the Watchmen comic book series um, from Alan Moore. Um, this series, though, is very aware of the present day. 
uh, and it incorporates, Damian Lindoff uh, is, is, is doing this particular series, it incorporates much of the politics and the sort of dynamic uh, that's in the air now in the series, even though the series is very much grounded in that Watchmen series. The characters carry over from, from one to the other. The new character in the series is played by Regina King, Mother Knight. She's this cop, although cops in this series must wear masks. And all of that is extremely complicated. Look, uh, this, is a, this, was, this, is a, this is an extremely controversial show. It has a lot of haters from the radical right. And if you watch this series, you'll see why. Uh, uh, but Damien Lindoff was very pointed about the story he wanted to tell. And even in the series, he sends literal messages to those watching the show. One of them says, if you don't like my story, write your own. The film, I'm sorry, the series is The Watchmen on HBO. By the way, HBO, uh, for the month of April, has a number of new films that are being introduced, including The Nice Guys, which came out a few years ago, Slumdog Millionaire from 2008, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild from 1986. One of my favorites, a very, very quiet film, Yuli's Gold. Uh, Claudia, you want to chime in on Yuli's Gold? Yes, I love that film. Isn't that a great one? Favorites. Yes, Peter Fonda's finest performance. And, you know, he recently passed away. And um, that is just such a wonderful film. He plays a beekeeper and with so much depth. And you just really get a sense of this character. You get a sense of the place. Uh, it was an absolutely beautiful film. And I remember it was, you know, it was a nominee for, well, he was nominated, I, I believe, for Best Actor. And it was a nominee for Independent Spirit uh, Awards. It was just a beautiful film. Hard to, hard to believe it's been over 20 years ago for, for Yuli's Gold. Tim, uh, back to you uh, to talk about some of the classic films on Turner Classic Movies and the TCM app. Uh, one of them being, and I think it might have aired uh, just a couple nights ago, uh, Otto Preminger's Carmen Jones. Oh, fantastic film from 1954, uh, 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 Carmen Jones, uh, the wonderful uh, Dorothy Dandridge uh, in that film, and some extraordinary musical performances uh, uh, from so, so many people. Otto Preminger, uh, one of the few directors at, at the time, giving uh, an opportunity to black actors uh, of stature, mostly singers and whatnot, uh, the opportunity to make movies like Carmen Jones. Uh, and while we're in a musical frame of mind, Stanley Donnan's 1954 classic Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. I love this movie with all my heart. I think only Wade Major perhaps loves this movie <laughs> uh, more, 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 more than I do, particularly, uh, well, I love the book, but particularly those dance numbers. The, the athleticism uh, of all of those numbers was just absolutely magnificent. And that color, that technicolor, um, uh, it plays as vividly today as it did back in 1954. So Seven Brides for Seven Brothers and you and Wade uh, for Two Brothers, we'll, we'll call it there. Uh, and Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus, which uh, I saw just about a week ago. Uh, just such a great film, and of course, um, with that the screenplay uh, from um, uh, the blacklisted. Uh, my mind's just gone blank. Uh, they did Dalton the movie Trumbo. of Dalton Trumbo. They did a film yeah. about him a few years ago. What a great film! Absolutely, the film. Uh, yeah, you know the wonder. Of course, we just lost Kirk. Uh, you know what? A couple of weeks ago, I guess it is. Now, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that, that we lost him, and he giving uh, that opportunity to Dalton and, and actually putting his name in the credits. Look, it's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Uh, it's funny about about Spartacus. I always, when people ask me about uh, as we approach Easter, people ask me about the religious movies that I recommend for Easter, and I always recommend Spartacus. And they and they were like, "What?" And I'm like, "I'm like Jesus is in the movie." 
<laughs> Jesus is in the movie. Uh, uh, and if you watch closely, uh, you see Jesus in the movie. Uh, Spartacus, again, on Turner Classic Movies and the TCM app. And uh, quick uh, notice for All the President's Men from 1976. All the Presidents have been a fantastic Alan J. Pakula film, and of course a film that sort of eventually led to a presidential impeachment. We're of course just coming off of a presidential impeachment. So interesting from a political historical point of view. What I really love the most about that film are the performances of, uh, of Robert Redford and Dustin Hoffman, um, who don't look anything like those two men that no. they were actually playing. No, absolutely not. But um, but it's just it's, it's one of the great films, and arguably had uh, its biggest effect in the recruitment of young people going into journalism. It made it look so exciting. Uh, hopefully they weren't too disappointed once they started reporting from typical uh, newspaper beats. Tim, thank you so much. As always, that's Tim Cogshell, Claudia Puig. Thank you, Claudia. And Charles Solomon joining us as well. Have a wonderful weekend, and we hope you're able to enjoy some terrific entertainment at home. Please stay safe. Back with you next Friday and Saturday for the next Film Week.